Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. You can get a free five-day home try-on. All you have to do is go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources page, and click on the Warby Parker icon. It's that easy. You'll get five pairs, five days, 100% free. And also, you could probably tell that kind of fooling around with the intro music a little bit. And I picked today's intro music because it kind of in the beginning sounds like Breaking Bad, which is by far like the best show ever. And not that today's show, we're not going to be talking about meth or anything like that. But what we are talking about is the evolution of a physical therapy career with my guest, Dr. Joe Tata. So Dr. Tata is a doctor of physical therapy, board-certified nutrition specialist and functional medicine practitioner who specializes in treating persistent pain and lifestyle-related musculoskeletal, metabolic, and autoimmune health issues. His mission is to create a new paradigm around treating persistent pain and reverse our global pain epidemic. He is the creator of the Healing Pain Online Summit and the Healing Pain Podcast, designed to broaden the conversation around the natural strategies towards solving persistent pain. He is also the author of the new book, which comes out tomorrow, Heal Your Pain Now, a revolutionary program to reset your brain and body for a pain-free life. So what are we talking about today? If you're a new, a new graduate or if you're a student PT, you're really going to want to take some notes here because we talk about Dr. Tata's career from graduating PT school, working in a hospital, working in clinics, honing his skills, and being able to use all those skills to open up his own practice. He had a couple of partners. We talk about how to have a successful, successful partnership. And we talk about how he used all of these skills to create a very successful practice that went from one to multiple practices in New York City. I can tell you that is not an easy thing to do. New York is expensive. And then finally, he was able to sell those clinics. So we talk about that entire evolution of going from working in hospitals and clinics to owning his own to selling his clinic and now moving on to still seeing patients, just not as many, and doing a lot of other, using his physical therapy degree to help those with persistent pain. So this was a great episode. I thank Dr. Joe Tata so much. And again, before we get to the episode, a reminder that today's episode is brought to you by Warby Parker. And for the listeners of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart, Warby Parker is offering a free five-day home try-on to give you the opportunity to check out their glasses. So their whole thing at Warby Parker is that glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Their prescription glasses start at $95. That's including the prescription lenses. They make buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Like I said, if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources page and click on the Warby Parker icon, you will get a five glasses to try on absolutely free shipped directly to you. So you can try them on in the comfort of your home, get feedback from friends, family, and colleagues. Users can keep the frames for five days before sending them back all for free. The prepaid returning, shipping labels, no obligation to purchase. So head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources pages, click on Warby Parker, and get your free try on now. Okay, so thanks to Warby Parker, thanks to Dr. Joe Tata, and thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode. Hey, Joe, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on my podcast versus me on yours. <laughs> We're doing a bit of a podcast swap here, so thanks for coming on. 
It's great to be here with you, Karen. So today we're going to talk about kind of the evolution of your PT career. I think a lot of students would be interested in this and, and even therapists throughout the lifespan because I think you've had an interesting run of it so far. Not And believe me, by all means, people, it's not like Joe's 90 years old here, I swear. <laughs> um, Retirement's not in my future. No, it's not retirement <laughs> yet. But so if you can let, just kind of let the audience get a better glimpse into your background from yes, yeah, day one-ish. So day one, I was born. No, I'm yeah. just <laughs> <laughs> um, So I, I graduated PT school in 1997, which may seem like a long time to all you SPTs out there. Um, but interestingly enough, I, when I graduated, I graduated with the, the last bachelor's program, I think, in the country, um, which I got to tell you was an awesome education because I went to uh, SUNY Downstate, which, um, you know, we took classes with the med students and the PA students and the OT students. So it was really it was it was a great school. Um, tough. Lo lots of basic science. Um, I came out of there like knowing everything um, as far as, you know, how to really function in a, in a you know, in a healthcare arena, no matter what setting I went into. But the first place I worked was a, a little community hospital here in New York City called St. Vincent's. Um, yeah, which is no longer, unfortunately. No, it's so sad. It was a, you know, small community hospital in the West Village that had a really interesting um, dynamic patient population because you had people who lived there for, you know, you know, years, decades. Um, a lot of people who immigrated there who were, you know, Italian or Jewish. And then you had lots of artists in the area. So um, some of the first patients I had there were really interesting um, producers and artists and hair and makeup artists and all sorts of things. So it was like it was like New York at its best. Um, so I did adult rehab there for about two years and, you know, worked with your typical post-op patients, um, joint replacements, um, CBA, um, Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injury. They had spinal cord injury there, which we saw a decent amount of. Um, what else did we see there? Some amputations, um, you know, your, your typical cabbage type patients, um, you know, post-op um, cardiovascular procedures. It was a really great first job. I, I loved that hospital um, and I loved that first job experience and especially working in adult rehab because you get to know all the other professions and what they're about, their, their pros and cons and their strengths and weaknesses. And you really get to see yours too as well. I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people don't think about that when they go into, when thinking about working in a hospital, whether it be a large or a small. And I think I, I started out in a small community hospital in Scranton. And I, I think what was really great about it, like you said, is you're working in a team you get to know your limitations, their limitations. You learn from each other. It's not this sort of siloed yeah. PT career. You know, you really, and I think you make some wonderful contacts that I'm sure help you in the future. Yeah, and I, I love the silo thing. I, I talk about that in my new book that's coming out, but it's really fascinating. When you work in, you know, a hospital, and whether it's inpatient or whether it's, um, you know, adult rehab, whether it's a skilled nursing facility, you have all those other professions around you. When you venture out into private practice, which I eventually did, there was a, a step there before I started private practice, but you don't really have that integrated um, communication the way you have it in the hospital. Now, you know, we're trying to make that better with electronic medical records and things like that, but it's never quite the same. Um, yeah, it's never quite the same. Like, I, I know people who maybe, like when you worked in a hospital, I know when I worked in a hospital, you have the ability to speak to 
10, 15 doctors a day. An yeah, outpatient, you may not get that in a month, two months. Yeah, I mean, one on one. It's true. I mean, you know, we all have those physicians that will pick up the phone when you call. And then, you know, a lot of them, and, and understandably, they're extremely busy. And when they refer a patient to you, they want to know that you're going to take care of them and that patient's going to come back and say, you know, I feel better, I'm moving better, I have less pain, and thank you for referring me to Dr. Litzy or Dr. Tata, whoever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're in St. Vincent's, you're getting a great sense of community, being part of a medical team, treating some really interesting patients. What happened next? So, you know, I was a, growing up, I was a competitive gymnast. So I, I knew I wanted to do something in sports, and I would have loved to have worked with gymnasts, but in New York City, there's not like a outlet for that. So I wound up working for a private practice uh, called Performing Arts Physical Therapy that provided physical therapy services to Broadway shows and to ballet companies. Um, so I did that for about two years. It was a blast. Um, working with dancers or like working with professional athletes. A hundred percent. So much fun. They're, they're, they're such a dynamic group to work with. So they're, they're smart. They, they will do whatever you tell them to do sometimes too much. Yeah. Um, they're very motivated. But what I found, cause I worked at the Lion King, what I found is that they're so grateful and so appreciative. And I think as the therapist working with them, it was very fulfilling. Yeah. It's right? true. They, they really, they're so grateful for any care they receive, which is, which is wonderful. Um, and they're also a great place to, if, if you want to be a manual therapist, like if manual therapy is your thing, they are the population to work with because they have a lot of soft tissue injury, um, a lot of soft tissue in, you know, problems. Um, they're, they're, they're easy to palpate cause they don't have a lot of, um, body fat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you, you can feel if you really want to figure out the, you know, ERS, FRS and work on your skills, they're a great population to, to work with. Um, so I did that for about two years doing that. So I saw patients in, in a practice. We had an actual practice where patients would come. And then evenings, as you know, Karen, because you've done some of this too, we'd go down to the theater and there'd be a table there. And um, some of it was um, acute injuries where they'd hurt themselves that day, let's yep. say, during rehearsal. Yep. And it was okay. Should I just continue seeing a physical therapist? Or do I need to go see the orthopedic doctor or the physiatrist to see what's really going on? And some of it was, was, was maintenance, which is fine too. Yeah. And I, I would, I would love the, the dancer that comes down at the end of, let's say the end of the second act or after the show's over and says, you know, they can't, can't walk the knees killing them. Oh, by the way, I can't miss tonight's show. Yeah. So do something for me. And, and I think as a therapist, it really allows, it really helps you to, to be creative, to have very good evaluation skills, um, and very good diagnostic skills really sharpens all of that. So I think that that really enhances your ability to be a good direct access therapist. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I saw you posting on Facebook uh, probably yesterday about direct access in, in New York versus Connecticut. Now, the interesting thing about when I worked for the Broadway shows is that New York State did not have any kind of direct access. That didn't happen until 2006. However, the one thing we could do is you could evaluate a patient, but you couldn't do any kind of treatment. You, I, you couldn't do ultrasound. You couldn't put their hand. You couldn't put your hands on them. Um, you know, most of us would show them an exercise. You know, we kind of felt like that was okay. 
But back then, you know, we didn't have direct access. So, but what was so fascinating about working in that environment it was the first environment where I had a function in a direct access type atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so finally, when direct access, you know, came to be in New York State, and we still don't have direct access the way I would love to have it in New York well, State. Well, it's not. It's not unlimited. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was an easier transition for me where some other therapists really kind of struggled a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other thing, you know, working for a Broadway show, you're not only seeing dancers and dancers are typically very healthy. Um, that's not all of them. Some of them eat horrible diets because they can get away with it. Um, they have very good genetics. They, they, yeah, they have, they're exercising a lot. So yeah. they're, burning, they're burning through a lot of stuff. But you also see a lot of the stagehands, a lot of yep. the stage crew, and they are not so healthy. Yeah. So you really, and a lot of them would come back for therapy, and and they're sick people sometimes with diabetes and back pain or an autoimmune condition, and and you know a, a frozen shoulder along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a wonderful experience as far as getting exposed to direct access. Yeah, and and a very wide variety of people. And I'm glad you mentioned the stagehands and things like that, and the prop masters and all the the people who, because when you go to a Broadway show, it is much more than the people on stage. Oh yeah. There's probably more yeah. people behind the scenes than there are on, on in front of the audience. And Absolutely. you're seeing everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, great. What a what a fun time. I have great memories from from working at the Lion King and and I remember people would say, "Oh, does it get old?" you know, and I was like, "It never gets old." <laughs> right. It just doesn't. I don't know how to explain it. it never gets old. Well, I I I'll comment on that from my experience. <clears throat> You were only working there part-time, right? Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you, it, it, I don't want to use the word old, because um, the, the patient, their personality never gets old because they're so much fun. The part that does get a little bit, I don't want to, you know, old is not the right word, but after you've seen a number of Achilles tendonitis from, you know, overuse from dancing, you kind of have seen enough of Achilles tendonitis, and you're like, okay, like, I want to, I want, like, you know the grandma who has a compression fracture yeah, or yeah. I want to see a, you know, a, a post-op something or, um, yeah, you know, going to see a post-op something. No, not typically. I mean, you yeah. do get dancers obviously who tear their ACL and they, um, injure their shoulder, let's say lifting someone, but for the most part, they're, they're relatively healthy and there's not too many post-op cases. Right. Yeah. And I think it is a homogenous group. And I think that's something that as a physical therapist that you really have to think about when making these decisions on employment, right? You really have to you really have to know what do I really love? Who's the person I really, really want to see? You know, and you better be prepared to see that patient all the time. That's right. And, and, you know, we can, so after those, we should talk about that too, because yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it. In my private practice, there were a number of female therapists who at one time wanted to do women's health and they started doing it and they said, you know, I like this, but I don't really want to do it full time. Mm. And that's what I found too. Like I loved working with the dancers, but at that point I was like, you know, really want to do this the rest of my career. And I think one of the great things about being a physical therapist is you have so many different aspects and avenues to really go. Yeah. There's a lot of options. There's so many, so many options, which is fascinating. And, and, you know, if you're a new grad, you listen to this, it may take you a couple of years to find that, that groove, so to speak. I agree. Um, so many of us, I think nowadays. When and that's grad, okay. Totally okay. You know, um, 
I, I also I think that you shouldn't job hop either. That's that's another um, pitfall I see people get uh, into. You know, you really should stay at a job a year or two to really kind of like figure things out, so to speak, before you start to kind of hop around because that could be that's not necessarily a good thing hopping around. You don't really get to hone your skills the way you really need to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the only reason to pop in and out of a job is if it's a terrible, dangerous thing for you to be in, you know, yeah. or or there's extenuating circumstances. But I agree. I think it's I think it's nice to kind of put down some roots and and really get to explore what you do as a physical therapist in an environment that allows you to do that. It's true. And nowadays, most PTs are winding up somewhere in outpatient because of obviously the way our, our healthcare system is going. Mm-hmm. But even even there, then you start to break down, okay, what kind of outpatient setting do I really want to work in? So after working with dancers, I went on to open, my, open a, a practice, me and two other physical therapists. Um, we opened, obviously, a PT-owned clinic. Um, and we opened our first office in the year 2000, and it was a um, completely direct cash-based practice. And that was here in New York, in yeah, New York City. Uh, yeah, yeah. Our first location was on, you know, if people know New York. It was the Upper East Side, mm-hmm. um, and there was three of us, and we found a, a little space, um, and we started, you know, seeing patients. And so you were in a partnership, or a yeah. A partnership. Yep. Yeah, so they were, they were. can you explain the pros and cons of that? Because I think a lot of people might be interested in starting their own practice and we see more and more people wanting to start a direct pay or a cash-based practice. So what would you say are your the pros of being in a partnership? And then we can talk about maybe the challenges or things that you wish could have been different. Sure. Uh, you know, the pros of the partnership I was in is that there were three people. And for us, three was like a magic number for many, many, many years because the three of our personalities really balance each other out. I Looking back, I think two would have been a tough number um, for me personally, maybe not for other people. It might be OK, but three was was really great. And, because and you have our, a tiebreaker. You have a tiebreaker. <laughs> I think the truth is when you go into a private practice and you start to expand to multiple locations like we did, you really need a lot of different types of skill sets. And the, oftentimes they can be very difficult to find just in one person. And you really, you don't, you know, it's unfair to ask one person to have all those skill sets actually because to run a private practice, whether it's direct pay or whether it's especially insurance, you need a lot of different types of skill sets. So. As we grew from one clinic and started opening up other clinics, those three personalities really complement each other really, really well. Um, and I, I think was the secret sauce to our, our success. And when you first started, was it just the three of you? Did you have a front desk person? Did you? Nope. No, it was just, just the three of us. Um, you know, I had come from that dancer background. So I did or, you know, orthopedic physical therapy. I was also trained as a Pilates instructor because I did that with, with dancers. So my schedule was like 75% sports and ortho, and I had a couple of like wellness Pilates people, um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, my other partner came in with an orthopedic and a pediatric background, which is great. She would see a lot of kids who had, you know, torticollis, um, cerebral palsy, failure to thrive, developmental delay. Um, so she brought that mix in. And then my other business partner was really more like the sports ortho guy. Um, 
so those are the three things we brought in. It really, you know, made for a fantastic combination to start a, a private practice. Yeah. So it sounds like if you're thinking about opening a practice and you don't want to do it on your own and you want to have a partner, whether it be one partner or two partners, maybe looking for someone who has skills that can complement you and, and maybe skills that you may not be super great at. Maybe they're really good at it. You know, I was speaking to a, a PT the other day who has a place here in New York City and she has, it's her and, and a partner. And she said, you know, I'm like the big picture person and I like to do the marketing and I like to have the vision. And then the other partner is the one who's worrying about getting the payroll done and, and doing the day to day. Now, what was interesting, and I think this is maybe where that third person comes in, she said, you know, sometimes that can cause a little friction, you know, because you have one person here and the other person stuck in into the minutia of the day-to-day. -day. So how did you guys work out that aspect of the business? You know, as, as the business grew, I think naturally we gravitated toward um, the – you know, when we're talking about the administrative side of the business, we gravitated toward the one part that we really liked. Um, I love hiring and training. Um, I just, you know, to me, it's it's I love talking to new therapists and kind of, you know, finding out what they're about and why they chose to be a physical therapist. And, you know, just that new energy that oftentimes you get with a new grad or maybe a PT who's only been out two or three years. Um, and their excitement on seeing their career grow. I, I, I love that and, and training them as well. Um, my other partner was really good at the book stuff, like kind of the number stuff, and she did all the medical billing and all that portion of it. Um, and my other partner was quite good at kind of the lease negotiation mm -hmm. and the actual physical plant maintenance, which we never think about when we go into practice, which becomes, um, you know, time-consuming at times. Yeah, there's no question. And so... Like you said, you started with one and then you grew into several. So my question is, well, twofold. Number one, what advice would you give to someone who has a practice who is thinking, I think I might be ready to hire someone? What metrics are you looking at specifically to know that, yes, this practice can take another person or persons in it? And then we'll talk about expanding. Well, I think you first need to look at yourself, actually. So if you want to hire someone, let, let's say you just started your practice and it's growing and your schedule's full and you're working 12 hours a day and you can't take any more patients, um, you really need to be mindful about who you're going to bring in and how you're going to bring them into your practice. And when I say how, it's really easy to, you know, you can hire someone, that's relatively easy. But you need to now integrate them into the core of your business and your core values. And that can be really challenging because if someone's coming from a different type of, of clinic where they've had a certain type of training and your expectations are one thing, but their previous expectations at their previous job were another, that can be a real challenge. So I really recommend that if, you, if you're going to you know, start to hire people, you should have some kind of onboarding and training process in place that you take them through. And I'm not saying, obviously, you're not, you know, re-educating. They have a, a license and a degree. Um, but there are still there are ways that you do things in your practice that you, you have expectations on how your patients should be treated, on how your interaction should be with staff or other patients. Um, it, it's really key as far as 
bringing people into your clinic or if you're going to you know, go from one clinic to multiple clinics. Um, so having those systems in place, the best thing that we did early on was we created a, a training manual that when a new therapist came in, they went through that training manual and they were tested. Um, you know, at first it was us. Later on, it was a more experienced therapist that would that would take them through that process. Um, and it, it was key because it really created continuity of care. It created, you know, almost one mind. Like when you came into the clinic, you know, patients knew that there was a method going on here and they felt safe there. And especially when you're working with people with chronic pain, they want to be able to feel safe in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. And then from a numbers perspective, what were you? I know you you weren't the numbers guy, but from a numbers perspective, what should you be looking at for on the bottom line? Because I've heard of practices hiring and then a couple months later saying, whoopsies, yeah. I don't think I should have hired you. Well, that that's true. I mean, it's very important that if you're going to hire someone, look at you know, where they worked before, or if they're a new grad, look at their expectation. Um, the challenge with some new graduates can be that some of them, not all of them, there are some wonderful, amazing new graduates, but some new graduates can take longer to onboard than other new graduates. And that's mm-hmm. just, you know, that's based on personality, that's mm-hmm. personality. Some of that's based on some of the affiliations they had. Um, some of it's just based on their comfort level. So setting expectations of when you hire someone, how many patients they're you know, going to see per hour, per day, per, per month even, and to let them know that you're looking at those metrics um, are, are very important. Because um, metrics are important in a business and they, they have their place in a healthcare business. They have their place in a physical therapy business. And the whole team needs to be on board with what those, those metrics are. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing about metrics is that sometimes – they can actually be, you know, a way to obviously they can be a way to motivate people, but they can be they can be a really good indicator as to how interested someone is in their job. Um, because as you start to hire people, you're going to find that sometimes that new employee lets you down and they have no desire to take on your core values in your clinic or your practice, no desire to take on your mission if your mission is to you know, let's say heal women if you're if you're developing a women's health practice and that's not really quite their thing. Um, they just want to, you know, give women's health a try. Uh, you know, those are all things you have to take into consideration. Yeah, and I would also think that when hiring you, like you said, you want someone who kind of fits in with the core values of your clinic. And I'm of the impression, too, that you want someone who's got a good personality, someone who's positive. Because... I feel like you, like you said, you had a training manual. They've gone through, like, they've gone through school. They're equipped, right? But you just want to also make sure that this person is going, their personality is going to fit with your personality because, boy, oh, boy, if it doesn't, that could be a bit of a disaster, right? Yeah, we would have a process where we, first you'd have a phone screen. It was about 20 minutes, you know, just getting to know you. Um, you know, very superficial, very just, Hey, here's what we're about. And, you know, where are you as far as your career, career transition or your career phase? Um, then you'd come in for an interview with one person and then you were invited back for a second interview with someone else. And then typically we would invite you in for, you know, a couple of hours, maybe an hour or two to observe and get mm-hmm. to meet the staff in a very relaxed environment. And it was, it was a really great way for 
us to interview people and as well for for candidates to interview us as well. Yeah, absolutely, because it's a two-way street, right? So if you're going in for a job interview, it is not all on the person, all on the employer. It is on you. So you can say, wow, this person's amazing as the employer, and that person's like, you know, they're really nice, but I don't think this is the right spot for me. And that's okay when you're looking for a job to say that. Absolutely. And, right? and yeah, and if you're looking at expanding and growing a, a you know, multi-clinic practice, also realize that as you do that, competition becomes a factor as well. So now, you, you know, in some parts of the country, physical therapists are actually not easy to find. Um, you may be competing with other practices. So when you, when you bring someone through that kind of interview process and they're interviewing you, they're going to probably give you some kind of information or you should be collecting information from them about what they like why they chose you or sometimes why they didn't choose you. If they didn't choose you, get on the phone with that person and say, hey, what did you not like about our practice? You know, what could we have done better to win you over and to get you to, you know, join our team? Yeah, so it's always a learning process, you know, and I think finding out the whys in, for positive and negative, like you said, they want to work with you, they don't want to work with you, then you can kind of just make a spreadsheet, sort of keep all of those things in mind so that yes you can accentuate the things that people really like about the clinic and improve the things that maybe was not so positive. That, that's true as, as you grow your practice whether it's one location or whether it's multi it, it's a constant constant uh, improvement process every day every week every month there should be metrics you have obviously um, whether those are hardcore number metrics or the softer metrics um, that I think so many practices, you know, don't focus in on that can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you guys started your one, you went to multi clinics. Okay. So you're riding high, you've got a bunch of clinics in New York city. This is like a dream, right? So then what happened? You know, honestly, for us, we really had no intention on selling our business. Uh, we grew it to a number of, of practices. We grew it to 15 locations. And, you know, we generally loved physical therapy. We loved being physical therapists. We loved serving more people and, and growing more clinics and, you know, giving therapists opportunities, giving obviously, you know, other people job opportunities, whether it's the receptionist, the billing person. And I think we had a, you know, we had a reputation in, the, in, in New York City and the surrounding area of having um, a wonderful practice. And because of that, someone basically wanted to purchase it from us. And we were in talks with this company for quite a while because we were initially, you know, going to join them in their, their company, um, and help them grow it. And then, you know, over time it, it was kind of like, well, it was kind of our baby and it might be a little difficult to see someone now take it and, you know, morph it into something else. Cause when someone buys any kind of business from you, they're going to change it slightly or, or drastically. And at that point we were like, you know, we're willing to sell, but if we sell, we'd like to say, here's our baby. We've grown it. You know, we've helped a lot of people in the course of 16 years. Um, you know, good luck with it. We're here if you need any help in the transition. We're here if you need any help, you know, going forward. But it's, you know, what, what's phase two in life, basically. And so can you walk us through the conversations that you had with your partners in deciding to sell or not to sell? Because mm -hmm. I think this is something people would really like to learn more about. Yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, for the more seasoned, you know, practitioners out there mm -hmm. who've had a clinic for a long time, 
you know, it's a very emotional thing selling your business. You know, when you've had it for so long, like some of our billing and reception people were with us since day one. Yeah. So the la- like I remember the last day going into our, our billing office and people were crying. They were emotional. So it's a very emotional experience. I think you have to, you know, you obviously have to be very thoughtful about it. Um, if you have partners in the business, obviously, these are people that you've known for many years. And it's like this separation that all of a sudden happens both on a business level and on a personal emotional level. So you have to prepare yourself for it. Um, you know, I say give yourself at least six months to prepare um, and think about what you're going to be doing after. You know, you hear about those people who, you know, re- they're, they turn 65 and they retire and they, you know, kind of drop dead, so to speak. Um, I kind of see how that can happen because your body, your brain, everything is so used to doing something on a daily basis. You know, the, the patients, the emails, the, the employees, the insurance companies, even the things that you, you know, don't like so much. Um, you're used to them and you have to, you have to think that what's going to fill that space. What's going to now occupy that in my life. Now, you know, look, if it's golf, it may be golf for you. It's, that's not what it is for me. Um, you may find that space occupying thing. Um, but I think most of us who are therapists, I think you'll find if you're not, you know, 70 and selling your business, if you're younger or you're merging with someone, um, you're going to want to do something else, you know, look for, you know, what else is there to do. And, I guess, what is the advantage of, what are the pros and cons of selling a business? So what is the advantage of selling your your business of 15 locations? Because, you know, there there had to be a, a compelling reason to do that because you didn't have to. No, I, you know, I think the advantage is, is like every investment you get, a, you know, you have the opportunity to take some money out of it, basically. Um, you know, the advantage that, I miss out on right now, and that was just the choice I made, was I didn't join the bigger company. So if that company now grows, I don't have you know an opportunity for growth with them. Um, so that was a disadvantage that I, I knew, and I, I took that on you know willingly, obviously. Um, you know, obviously there are advantages that if 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 you have lived that cycle of the business out, that you now have free time to to plan a, to plan a new one. Um, those are really the the advantages and disadvantages that I have seen with it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So, all right, you. Oh, quick question: When you grew these fifteen locations, were they all cash based, or did you start taking insurance, or how did that work? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So we started out one hundred percent cash based, mm-hmm. and we opened our second local uh, clinic the same exact way, one hundred percent cash based, and then by the third one, it started to get a little more challenging to grow multiple locations based on cash. Why is that? Just well, the, I, it wasn't the need wasn't there or. So here's the thing. When you have a cash based practice, the patient who comes to you typically is they're looking for a therapist who's really more vested in your health. 110%. Now as you start to grow as a, as a clinic, as you grow multiple practices, you know, you're hiring employees. And at times there are therapists that aren't as vested. They, they do a good job. They come to work. Obviously they treat patients, but it's not the same as having an owner or a business partner, or let's say, you know, your clinic manager is, is vested in some way. Um, it starts to get a little bit watered down. So they're not willing to pay the same amount basically. Okay. That's, I, and I think that's great. Cause I know you hear a lot of 
saying, oh, I, I, you know, how do you scale a cash PT business, right? Well, here's the interesting part. So then we transitioned to insurance. And when we first transitioned, insurance was paying relatively well in New York State. But over, over the evolution of our business, as you know, Karen, you're here in New York, insurance has been cut, visits have been taken down, Orthonet is, you know, can be very vigilant about getting visits for I was gonna private say, practice. Challenging. Yeah, challenging. <laughs> challenging is a, is a very nice word. Um, so we actually started going the reverse direction toward the end of our business. We started working in more cash-based services again. Um, you know, really a mix of different things: some insurance, some cash-based, um, some wellness-type things. Yeah, so adding other things into the mix. So you may still take insurance, but adding more cash-based options. Yeah, I mean, some of the insurances, you know, here covered, you know, less than six visits. So mm -hmm. patients weren't well. And it's like, okay, we need to obviously offer people a, a cash option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cause, yeah. Because literally, they're, they're not done. They're not anywhere near being done with their care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you sold your practices. So when did all of when did this sell-off happen? Was that more recently? Was that a couple of years ago? So that was in 2014. Cool. So you've just yeah. been hanging out, traveling the world, doing nothing <laughs> since. <laughs> it, it always sounds it always sounds like it's going to happen that way. It never happens that way. Yeah. Um, so so what have you been doing to occupy your time? You said you know when you haven't when you're thinking about exiting out of that practice, you need to have a plan. So what was your plan and, and are you sticking with it? You know, it's funny when I first exited, I, you know, I had a lot of, um, professors I knew in kind of the surrounding universities in New York. And I really thought, Hey, I'm going to go teach now. Some of us, you know, I think oftentimes there's that thought in your head that, well, you know, teaching is kind of like on the way out to retirement, so to speak. So I, I looked into that and I, I still find that interesting. However, when I looked back at having 15 clinics and doing that for 16 years, I was like, you know, I really helped a lot of people and I didn't actually set out to open all those practices. It, we just kind of, it just kind of happened organically. Uh -huh. But how do I, how do I make this bigger? How do I reach more people now? How do I kind of, you know, help more people? Cause as you know, we have a chronic pain epidemic and our chronic pain numbers have been getting worse despite all the medical advances we have in our modern technology. So I said, you know, I really want to, you know, put my stake in the ground and help those people out in the chronic pain world. So I wrote a book proposal and I brought it around to about 10 New York City uh, publishers. Um, and they all interviewed me, which is talk about grueling interview experience. Those people are, are they know their they know their work. They know the pain books that are out there. Um and I got a, an offer to write a book. So I spent probably about four months writing a, bo a book called Heal Your Pain Now. Um, it's a book about healing chronic pain from an integrative approach. And that's launching, you know, right about now. Mm -hmm. So that, that was my, you know, that was one of my little pet projects. Was how do I reach more people without actually doing it in a, in a physical office in a brick and mortar practice? Got it. Uh, so the book was one. And then I started doing other activities online to try to, you know, spread the message of hope and healing for those with chronic pain. Well, I think that's an incredibly noble cause. And as one, as a person who has had chronic pain in the past, it's, I know firsthand what it's like. And it's always the one thing that you really want when 
you're five years in, six years in of, of relentless pain is you want to feel a little bit of hope and you want to feel like there are people there who are willing to help and are willing to kind of take you on, you know? Because I always say like, you know, you've had, everybody's had that patient where they walk in and you, you start talking to them and oh, they've had pain for eight years. It starts at the back of their neck. It goes down their back. It's down their arms. They can't get out of bed some days. They can't do this. Um, it's numbness. It's tingling. They're crying. They don't want you to touch them. You know, I think we can say we've all had that patient and that is a challenging patient to work with. Those are most of my patients now, actually. Yeah. Um, and that was me. I was that yeah. person, you know, and, and I know I would not be someone's ideal patient. Let's put it that way. I'm not everyone's <laughs> ideal patient, you know, um, but as a result of that experience, I'm, that's now one of my ideal patients. You know, I enjoy that population and, and oftentimes when you're working with people with chronic pain, it's not an overnight success. You know, if you no. have someone with CRPS, it's years. Yeah. You know, and I really do think in some ways um, the medical system has not supported those types of patients at, at all. Um, we've tried, I think, we, you know, the medical system has tried with various treatments. But, you know, have we really been listening to people with chronic pain? Like the, the woman I saw this morning, um, she said, you know, it was just my back is still killing me. It was just so recently that I could start wearing leggings because every time I put like spandex on, it would hurt my skin. Like it was so tight. I couldn't wear tight clothes. Yeah. She had some allodynia going on there, eh? Yeah. And she somehow worked it out on her own, but she still has chronic back pain. Mm -hmm. um, but she has seen, you know, the list on her eval is probably like 10 different types of, yeah. of people. Typical. Um, yeah, it's typical. And, you know, these patients are out there. They're looking for a solution. Um, and oftentimes they need some kind of integrated solution for their care. And I think physical therapists are the ones to really, you know, turn our pain, our, our chronic pain epidemic around. Yeah, um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I think, again, so this goes back to your very first job at St. Vincent's, right? When you're treating that chronic pain patient, you want that team around you. You know, you want to have maybe a good pain psychologist. You want to have a good physician who's caring and who understands the population. You want to have your physical therapist, a caretaker, whether it be a friend or a significant other or what have you. But I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, I don't know how many years later, 20 years later, <laughs> I'll just, you know, we'll say that under our breath. Yeah, right. Doesn't it feel like you've kind of come full circle and that you're, you're back into working with these interesting, not that all patients aren't interesting, but maybe a more complex patient and, and being part of that team again, I think is, is well, really special. Yeah, let's let's talk about this because this is interesting. So I do love the complex patients because um, you get to use all your skills. They're challenging, and you really got to kind of go into your you know toolbox and figure out what's going to help them. Now I talk about this in my book as a way to kind of challenge our chronic pain paradigm. So we know that integrative strategies are the best way to heal someone who has chronic pain, and the NIH talks about this in their you know new study and 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 
paper that's come out from the CDC typically is a combination of some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. exercise therapy, which IE is physical therapy, obviously, um, and then a nutrition in, uh, intervention if they need that, which so many patients in our um, society need some kind of nutrition intervention. Obviously, if they have if they're uh, diabetic, pre-diabetic, if they have cardiovascular disease, if they have autoimmune disease, a lot of those disease, diseases do really well with a nutritional intervention. But my challenge for everyone listening to this is that think about your patient now, that now they have to find an integrated care center like that, which I can tell you there are very, very, very few in the country that have everything under one roof like that. Yeah. There was actually a paper that just came out about it. Um, and even if they did find that, how much time would that patient have to invest in their week? And how much money would that cost them? And is insurance going to cover all that? And the answer really is no. Mm-hmm. So what I think, and my not only my opinion, my, my belief, my strong belief is that physical therapists have the skills to really take on a lot of the things we just spoke about. Now, if someone is manic depressive and they're in a manic depressive state, they're being referred to a psychologist ASAP. Mm-hmm. But if you're just talking about pain catastrophizing behaviors or fear avoidance behaviors or even a little bit of the anxiety that happens, you have the skills if you're you know, doing some good continuing education and you're keeping your skills up, you have the skills to work with those patients. Obviously, you have the physical therapy skills, the exercise skills. You know, the AP, APTA just put out a, a statement, I think it was last year, and I did a blog post for them on it regarding nutrition, on how nutrition is part of our practice act, so to speak, on a national level. The states each have to individually adopt that. But now, if you can provide those three types of services in your clinic, is that is that more valuable to your patient? Does it save them time? Does it save them money? And is it a more cost-effective and efficient way to help our chronic pain patients? My response really is yes. Now, if you're a physical therapist and you have no desire to learn anything extra about nutrition, that's fine. If you have no desire to go take a, a you know a, a a a course on coaching skills or you know behavioral approaches, that's fine too. But I really do think in our evolution of medicine, you're going to see this happen more and more. Because we don't have enough practitioners to take care of our chronic pain patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to find solutions um, to help them. Yeah, and I think to your point, if you, as a therapist, if you don't want to learn those extra skills, you have best have people on your team who can. And that doesn't mean another therapist. Like you said, that could be a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a pain psychologist, a dietitian, whatever. But you have better be able to have that referral on hand. It's true. You have the referral. And as you become more experienced, you really start to figure out, okay, do I really need to refer this patient out or can I work with them and give them some skills and tools that may change their negative thought patterns, their pain catastrophizing, the anxiety that they have around their pain. Um, All those things you can start to work into your practice as you become a more skilled clinician. And and interestingly enough, I think the better therapists just do it innately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. They have figured out. They have figured out that okay, I have to do this regardless of no matter what the patient's condition is. Yeah, because because they know it's the best for the patient. It's true. I mean, if you're looking at let's say your chronic pain population, there's a hundred million people. Let's say that have chronic pain. Well, 50, 50 million of those people have an autoimmune disease. 
So should you figure out if gluten really is something that makes sense and is there evidence based behind that or is it just something you read on a fancy website and there's no evidence behind it? Right. And that could be that could be the one thing that changes someone's pain in the matter of seven days. Right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think these are things that require some further intervention, uh, some further studying and some education all around, you know, and, and I think that that's where things seem to be headed, it, at least even within the medical field. I think that's where things seem to be headed are the, the integration of different aspects of care to, to help, especially those with chronic pain. That's right, because you're looking at a whole patient, basically. Because as you know, pain is both a sensory and an emotional experience. You have to look at, okay, where's all the sensory coming from and where's all the emotional coming from? How do those two work? Yeah. Can I handle them in my practice with this one patient? Do I work in the in the clinic? Like, you know, now I see patients direct and I just spend an hour, I spend an hour with them, so I have plenty of time. And I can work on some of these strategies where, you know, if you're in a practice where you're seeing three or four patients an hour, that may not be the... Um, ideal place to, to bring in the biopsychosocial aspect of care that we need. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, you can, it just has to be in smaller doses. Right? Yeah. It's, it's and, very and I think it's, it happens in smaller doses. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe as you're treating them, you're talking to them about some of these concepts. Maybe it's a class that you can do a group teach with or something like that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I think you just have to get creative. Yeah, it could be a handout that yeah. you hand to your patient and say, hey, I have a couple of bullet points on this handout, read it, and next visit we're going to spend the first five minutes of your treatment session, the first ten minutes of your treatment session reviewing them. Um, regarding the group, there's tons of, of, of supportive um, evidence around the group, and I actually have an online group. I One is a support group that I have that's free, so anyone can join that. Um, it's called the Healing Pain Support Group. It's a Facebook group where people go in there and they, you know, com communicate with other people in the group. I moderate it, which means I'll go in occasionally and kind of help the group, support the group. Um, the other group is a paid group. I have a program called Heal Your Pain, Heal Your Life. And that's a six-week online program that I take people through that helps them heal their chronic pain. And that is a, a paid group that people join. And in that group, I'm in there every day you know, providing support, providing strategies, providing input, feedback. And I do live uh, Q&A calls with them where patients get to ask their questions directly. Yeah. So, I mean, that just shows there's so many ways that we can reach this population that it doesn't necessarily have to be one-on-one. -on -one. And I know that Beth Darnell, who you've spoken to and I've spoken to, she's just got an NIH, NIH grant for like millions of dollars to look at just that, to look at some group education um, via uh, telehealth, yeah. you know, to kind of reach people in, in places where it's very rural or maybe they don't have the, the money to do one-on-one. -on -one. And so she's had some good success with her initial trials, which is what got her such a huge NIH grant. So I, I look forward to, to things like that as the technology grows and kind of helps us to reach more people. I think it's a win-win. Yeah, in some ways the technology is there. I mean, you could start a Facebook group for free. It yeah. doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. You invite people into it and you send them some emails to to keep in touch with them. Um, you know, looking at the evolution of, of practice. So 
I was in a hospital. I was in, you know, working with dancers. I was in my own private practice. Now I basically have a virtual practice at this point from for the majority of my time. And I do think virtual is the the wave of the future for a lot of the health conditions, especially the chronic pain conditions, because they need a lot of support um, around various aspects of care for, uh, you know, some of them for a longer period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's a, a great way to kind of wind down our discussion here. But before we finish, I have one last question. It's a question I've been asking a lot of my guests, I guess all of them. And it's, so we spoke about when you first graduated, you started working at St. Vincent's back in 97. So knowing where you are now in life and what you're doing, what would you say to yourself as that young graduate, as that new graduate, what advice would you give yourself? I would say that here's the opportunity I missed out on that if I look back now, I would have interviewed therapists, let's say, who had 10 years experience over me, who have worked in some different environments, maybe started their own practice, and say, hey, how has your career changed? And where do you see the profession going in the future? Because I think the more experienced therapists, really, they can kind of connect the dots for you. Because when you first come out of school, you don't really, you only see the first job in front of you. You only see that next week. You don't see, okay, what's this, what's my career going to be like for the next, you know, let's say three decades of your life, maybe four decades of your life. Mm-hmm. So interview some of the experienced therapists, interview ex- therapists who've done multiple different types of practice settings or, you know, courses or specialties and, and talk to them and see what they say about the future of the practice and where there may be an opportunity that they see that you may not see that you may want to start to dig your heels in now and develop that that niche or that practice or that online program, whatever it may be. Yeah, well, I think that's great advice. So to all you student PTs out there, start uh, looking around at people at maybe where you've done your clinicals online in your town, what have you, and and reach out to PTs and ask them some of those questions. I think that's wonderful advice. And now we talked about the book. So when does where can people find the book? What, what, where can people find you? Let's, you know. Yes, yeah, so you can find me on my website. It's drjoetata.com. So that's D-R-J-O-E-T-A-T-T-A.com. Uh, my book is called Heal Your Pain Now. It's available on Amazon and all the online retailers, as well as all the major uh, book retailers, Barnes & Nobles, uh, starting February 7th. You can also get some free gifts along with that book if you go to healyourpainnow.com. And if you buy the book and come back and uh, give me your receipt, I'll send you some free gifts for that. And I also have a pain quiz that people can check out. So if, this is great for practitioners. This is great for people who have pain. It's thepainquiz.com, so they can go to that. Very cool. And... So the book is out. People know how to get in touch with it. Again, if you missed any of this, just head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. It's all in the show notes with direct links. That's how easy we make it here. If you want the book, we will have the Amazon link. We will have links to websites. It's one-click shopping over here. So, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time out today and coming on the podcast, and congratulations. 
Thanks, Karen. It's great to chat with you, even though we're just blocks away. I know. We really should have done this in person. Next time. <laughs> next time. Next, next time. time. Yeah. And we're both even on the West Side. This is crazy. All right. Next time we'll do, we'll do it in person next time. But thank you so much for coming on. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, have a great week. We're so happy you joined us. And stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you.